Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, И сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. The Lamaze method is virtually synonymous with natural childbirth in America. So imagine my surprise when I learned that Lamaze didn't originate in the U.S. or even France, but in the Soviet Union in the 1940s. The French obstetrician Ferdinand Lamaze brought it to France when he visited the USSR in the 1950s. The method, called psychoprophylaxis by its developer, the Soviet obstetrician Ilya Vilvolsky, was adopted by the Soviet state as a way to manage women's labor pain and promote promenadalism after World War II. So how did the Soviet psychoprophylaxis become Lamaze and move from behind the Iron Curtain to the U.S. during the Cold War? I turn to Paula Michaels for the story. Paula Michaels is an associate professor of history at Monash University in Australia. Her work bridges the histories of Eastern and Western Europe, integrating the USSR into a pan-European and global narrative through the study of social and cultural history. She's the author of Curative Powers, Medicine and Empire in Stalin's Soviet Central Asia, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and Lamaze in International History, published by Oxford University Press. I've also provided a partial transcript to this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Paula Michaels. So your book, um, Lamaze in International History, it looks at the surprising origins of the Lamaze birthing method in the Soviet Union. And I was always very surprised by this. Um, perhaps you were too when you first found this out. And looking at its adoption throughout, not just in, in adoption and decline in USSR, but also in Europe and the United States. And since your book is an international history, I thought we'd start by just having you talk a bit about how historians have looked at the history of childbirth, because um, I would assume that many in my audience don't know that there's a history or are not really familiar with it. Right. I think um, we think about childbirth as something that doesn't change because the, the physiology of it is more or less constant. And it's not like we're evolving in any way um, that's perceptible. Um, so there are people who do talk about the ways that physiologically birth is changing in the sense that uh, you know, sort of women who live in uh, urban areas and live modern lives today aren't necessarily as physically fit as they were in the past. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the way obesity uh, on the rise in the Western world and elsewhere is impacting 
birth situations, like maybe that's a factor in the rise of cesarean section. But, but what I'm interested in is the sociocultural context in which the physiological experience of birth takes place. And that, of course, is historically conditioned. So there are basically two big camps of historians of childbirth in the West. And one camp uh, kind of organizes or derives from the work of Richard and Dorothy Wirtz. Uh, who wrote a, a book about the history of childbirth uh, in the United States. And in their book, they really emphasize uh, a theme that others before them, including Barbara Ehrenreich and Barbara English, did, um, which is about how the medicalization of birth has led to the disempowerment of women. Another school of thought comes out of the work of Judith Walzer Levitt. And uh, that book really makes the argument that, yes, there is uh, a, a disempowerment of women that, is a that accompanies the, the move from home to hospital and the shift in care from midwives to physicians, but that women were really part of that transition and that women in, in a sense, collaborated with their physicians and exchanged um, some power for a sense of security and care, a different, kind, a different kind of care than they were getting from midwives. So um, she tries to emphasize the way that women had agency even in their own disempowerment. So I think those are the two kind of big approaches to the history of childbirth. And um, I would say more and more scholars are leaning in the Walzer Levitt direction, um, which really shows a more complicated picture. There's, and, and, and there isn't that much difference between those two schools in that they both recognize the ways in which the medicalization of childbirth uh, has cost women something. And where do you where do you situate your uh, your work on the Lamaze method in those two broad trajectories? So I would say I'm probably closer to the Levitt school, um, and in that I definitely see the ways in which women are making choices, even if those that we that some may or may not agree with, but that there's a difference between um, having power taken from you and giving, giving power away. And uh, especially when we're talking about the early 20th century, uh, middle and upper class women were very enthusiastic about, for example, the use of pain medication in childbirth. This was not seen as something that was disempowering to them, but it was an active choice that they were making. And I think if we have a fuller picture of how we got to where we are today, we can maybe embrace a, a wider range of choices and then get away from the kind of polarized conversations that we have uh, that are sort of all or nothing regarding pain, pain management in childbirth. Um, now, one of the interesting things that's, I think, connected to these broad trends is this 
transition uh, in beginning in the mid 19th century, but really into the early 20th century. And that is the increasingly medicalized uh, regulation and um, I should say the increasing medicalization of childbirth and the movement of giving birth, say, from the home or amongst midwives into the hospital where you have doctors and it's mostly a male sphere. Um, Talk about this historical transition and what it meant for women. So originally, hospitals were actually the places where the poorest women gave birth. Um, and then over time, it, and in part, that's because they were really dangerous. Um, there was, you know, no understanding of the germ theory of disease. The conditions in these places were not, were, were very unclean. And um, so you were at greater risk uh, in terms of your own health and well-being and that of your child to go to a hospital to give birth. Uh, But with the passage of time, as we had a greater understanding of germ theory, of the need for um, medical carers to just do something as simple as wash their hands before they do an internal examination, um, then conditions improved And especially as pain medication became something that was more available uh, and there were strides made in that sphere, then the hospital became more the site for middle and upper class birth rather than a place where poor people were, were shunted off. And the hospital began to be a place that offered something that couldn't necessarily be offered in the home, or at least not in the home as easily. And so women began to choose to give birth in hospitals. And of course, those choices were uh, encouraged in ways that over time made them less likely to consider other choices. Um, But then, and as birth moved into the hospital, there became an increasing struggle between uh, midwives and physicians over authority over the birth process. And in different countries, you have different outcomes. So in great, the starkest contrast is really between Great Britain and the, and the United States. In Great Britain, you have midwives who were very, able, very um, effective in, able, in being able to protect their own interests their own professional interests. And they successfully um, repelled the effort by physicians to um, marginalize them professionally and to discredit them. Uh, in the United States, midwives were not, that, were not successful at doing that. And Physicians, not only GPs, but eventually obstetricians were able to create a virtual monopoly over birth, and that gave them exclusive rights inside hospitals. And if, as long as women wanted to go to hospitals and they wanted to have um, pain relief, then they were pushed into the hands of Uh, physicians, and in particular, eventually obstetricians. Um, Now, that trend has been somewhat 
um, mitigated in recent decades. There's actually a new book on the revival of midwifery in the United States by Wendy Klein. And, um, but it's still a very small um, and, and, and marginal, but, you know, growing and kind of continuing to be, uh, to exist in the United States. How did women experience childbirth in terms of this issue of agency and having to negotiate with mostly male doctors who are highly professionalized and use their authority? Um, how did the experience of birth change for women once it was more into the hospital and once it was also the use of various pharmaceuticals? Well, uh, it is important to remember that that's really different in from national setting to national setting and over time. And one way in which it's important to flag for the audience is that in the Soviet Union, most doctors were women by the 1930s. Um, and that's not true in, uh, in the United States or France or Great Britain, the other places where I examine um, the history of the Lamaze method. Um, I'm not, I don't really think that the fact that they're women actually changes the quality of the care. And everything that I encountered um, in my research suggests that women practitioners, just as much as men, are inculcated in their um, faith in their authority as medical practitioners and that that kind of overrides what one might expect to be some sort of like a, an empathy for a fellow woman or something like that, or as someone who might themselves have given birth um, to be able to project themselves into the experience of their women patients, you don't really see that in practice, that they are medical practitioners um, first and foremost. And, and in fact, um, in Jackie Wolf's new book about the history of the cesarean section on, in the United States, she does a number of um, oral histories with, um, with women uh, obstetricians. And, you know, they're pretty much first in line to, to uh, get the C-sections. They are not uh, resistant in the least to the medicalization of of birth, they're true believers. So, um, so I do want to just like flag that as a consideration um, that you have women doctors for the most part in the Soviet Union rather than men doctors. In Great Britain, midwifery, you know, um, maternity care remains in the hands of midwives rather than physicians uh, throughout the 20th century. There is a period when middle, upper middle class women are turning more to physicians, but with the coming of the National Health Service in the late 1940s, that's kind of turned back. So um, again, a setting in which women continue to care for women. But the big shift is in the, the, the hospital being the site for birth, and that brings with it a kind of regimentation um, and the, the real disempowerment of women is in the way in which the timetable of the hospital dictates the care, the quality of the care, the pace of the birth, concerns about moving women along in the process, not allowing sort of nature to take its course in the same way, because the regimentation of the 
the shifts of the nurses, the shifts of the doctors, um, the sort of mass uh, production scale, especially during the baby boom, that all informs and conditions the quality of care. Now, let's turn to Lamaze. What is the Lamaze birthing method and, and what are its Soviet origins? So I, it is um, important to remember that, so what we think of Lamaze today and what it was in the past are different things. So today, a lot of people, younger people, don't even necessarily recognize it as a particular birthing method. And Lamaze International, which is the world's largest prenatal uh, education organization, um, is very quick to say that it's a philosophy about birth, not a technique. That was, that was not true in its origins. And in its origins, it was absolutely a technique. And it's one that your audience would immediately recognize if they've ever seen any American movie or television show in which somebody gave birth. Because the, the and I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that they probably have. So whether it's all in the family in which Gloria gave birth or it's an episode of Friends decades later, you often will see um, some partner telling somebody to just breathe. And then they do this kind of pattern breathing that I won't demonstrate, um, but it's often called the he-he-who method of breathing, um, which is like short, rapid breaths and then um, a an exhalation, a long exhalation. So that pattern breathing, that's the Lamaze method. But it's so ubiquitous in our cultural notion of how we give birth that it's actually, we don't even associate it with Lamaze. But that, 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 those breathing patterns, that is something that a Soviet psychologist developed and brought into birth practice. And the idea was for it to be um, something that would dis effectively distract women from pain and that it would be a way to preoccupy the mind with something or more specifically um, on a neurological level, the cerebral cortex, occupy those pathways with something in order to interfere with the transmission of pain signals from the uterus to the brain. Let's talk about more about how this developed in the Soviet Union and particularly its main developer of, of what it was called psychoprophylaxis. So who, who was Velvovsky and, and how did he, what's his story? So Velvovsky was a psychologist, not a physician, and he was a student of, uh, not, not in a literal sense, but a follower of Pavlov and um, Ivan Pavlov, the Nobel Prize winning Russian um, uh, neuropsychologist. Um, now, in the 1940s, there was a boom in psychology 
uh, that was influenced by Pavlov, in part because it was ideologically safe. The upside of Pavlov was he was a Russian. And so in the early years of the Cold War, it was always a good idea to be promoting the ideas of somebody who was Russian rather than someone who was Western. Um, so that was handy. But at the same time, it was also um, something that he genuinely believed. He wasn't just being politically savvy. Um, he came out of a school of thinking and had since the, the late 20s and 30s been working in this arena. And it, so there's that aspect. That's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is that in the period after World War II, the Soviet government was very interested in getting women to have more babies. World War II, World War II had, um, as, as you well know, uh, had devastating demographic impact on the Soviet Union, and they desperately wanted to replenish the population. And to do that, they wanted women to have more children, and they believed that if, if childbirth could be made painless, then women, well, then why wouldn't you have more babies, right? That's got to be an obstacle. Um, but, of course, at the same time, in the post-war conditions, there wasn't a whole lot of money lying around to invest in the kind of pharmaceutical infrastructure that would have allowed the mass production of nitrous oxide, which was widely accepted as an effective pharmacological means of pain relief, had actually been used for the first time worldwide in childbirth in Russia in the 1880s. So it had a long history of use in, in that space and um, was generally regarded as safe and effective. Um, but it involved um, a lot at the equipment to administer it and, of course, the drugs itself. And there wasn't enough to go around. And what about expertise? Would the expertise also, was that an also a consideration? Um, yes and no, because actually by then there were machines that had been developed that would allow for self-administration of a mix of, of nitrous oxide and oxygen. And, um, and there was a, they were constructed in a way that a woman could not overdose inadvertently. So, but you needed this machine and you needed the drugs to put in the machine. Um, and the machine was actually portable as well. So um, in, in Great Britain, those machines were widely used and there was a lot of investment in making those accessible. And actually, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched the show called The Midwife, um, but, but there is an episode in called The Midwife in which one of those um, gas and air machines, as they were called, is used in a home birth setting. So those, those machines were known in the Soviet Union. They had their own model that they had invented. They had, they had the capability of producing those machines and the drugs to go in them. But they didn't have the, the uh, or they chose not to invest in the uh, infrastructure that would have allowed the production of those machines on a scale that would have been meaningful nationally. So, so you have, and, and I would say that this is, this particular issue, my concern with the material conditions of the Soviet Union, I do think is one thing that distinguishes my work from 
other historians of childbirth. Uh, so historians who work in the, on the United States or in Great Britain, I think are maybe less attentive to the, the ways in which material conditions impinge on the course of development of uh, medicalization in the, it be, because it's maybe less um, uh, in your face than it is in the Soviet Union, and especially by, by way of contrast with the West. So in the Soviet Union, there's no looking away from the ways in which these dire uh, financial straits in the post-war years uh, close off certain pathways of development. And one, one of those is um, a more pharmacological pathway. So what Velvovsky, who is working in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv today, Kharkiv, what he was looking to do was continue work that he had done before the war on hypnosis in childbirth as a way of managing pain, but come up with a way to do it on a scale that could be... Um, a mass method applied on a mass scale. And so he, his idea, not just his, but that of his whole team, what, what they struck upon was the idea of having group lessons, what we know today as, you know, Lamaze classes, um, to have these group lessons to train group cohorts of women in these breathing patterns that would preoccupy the cerebral cortex and interfere with pain signals and allow therefore for effective pain management. Another interesting piece of this puzzle is how firmly all of these men, and they are all men, believed that the pain was in women's minds. So they are very skeptical that something that's occurring naturally is actually physically painful. I think it's pretty difficult to believe that that's not genuinely painful it, for anyone who's either been through it or seen it happening. Um, that takes a lot of chutzpah. So let me ask about that, this issue of birthing pain, because there seems to be two broad kind of trends in which obstetrics dealt with the issue of, of managing labor pain. Um, one, of course, is with pharmaceuticals, and the other one is through, like, Vilvovsky with psychology. So, so how did they under how did doc, these various doctors understand pain, labor pain? So, th broadly, there's these two camps, and one camp says um, we have these great drugs, and the more, there's no reason why women should have to feel pain. And, and in that camp are plenty of women. It's important to remember that there are lots and lots of women who do not see any value in experiencing pain in childbirth. And they are very quick to say, look, you would not have uh, a root canal without pain medication. Why would you give birth without pain medication? Um, and so there are those doctors who, to varying degrees, think that pain should be mitigated to the best of our ability. Um, and in the old days, let's say the middle of the 20th century, um, that was up to and including effectively putting women to sleep through, uh, through a mixture of 
morphine and scopolamine, which was an amnesic. So women, and morphine was notoriously not so effective in managing the pain of labor, but women were in this sort of really drugged up, hazy state in which they would then have only kind of the foggiest memory of what they had been through. And this was thought to be humane. This is, is this um, twilight sleep? Yes, exactly. Twilight sleep, which the Germans came up with in the 19th century. And the, it was thought to be good for women that they didn't remember what they had been through. But, but by the middle of the 20th century, in the post-war years especially, as notions about motherhood were changing, about family life, about togetherness between husbands and wives, then there began to be this idea that, that women were being robbed of something precious to not be able to either participate fully in or even remember. Um, and so there's a lot of things going on at that moment um, about consumer culture, uh, about uh, relations between men and women, between patients and doctors, a variety of factors are coming together. So that idea that women would be better off if they were uh, what later became in the 60s called awake and aware, that had been circling since the 1930s. But in the late 40s, it sort of um, got some traction that it hadn't had before. Let me ask you. Let me ask you something about this issue of of women should not remember. Was in in how doctors understood the pain of childbirth. Was there a, a notion of a trauma associated with it? That if if women experience this trauma, then they would be less likely to give birth again. Yes. So that's one of the factors, and that's definitely they wouldn't necessarily have used that vocabulary to describe it, and they, depending on where and when, they would have understood it in different terms, um, whether they were Freudian or otherwise. But this idea that there's no, nothing good can come of women having a distressing experience <clears throat> of childbirth. That was definitely, especially when they didn't yet really have the vocabulary for what we would today call postpartum depression. Um, but there was an awareness that, you know, some women did go through that. Um, so, or, you know, even if they didn't call it that. So, um, yes, that is one of the factors. Another factor, though, that has to be acknowledged is that it made the life of medical carers easier if women were docile. It goes along with this production. I mean, the way you're describing the medicalization, and particularly the the the, birth, the woman giving birth, being having to fit into the time schedule of the hospital and its various personnel, uh, having them docile is a perfect you know additive to that kind of production line or or industrialization of birth in some respects. Yes. And who wants to work in a maternity ward that's full of screaming women? It's much more pleasant for the staff if everybody's calm and quiet. And so there's there's so many things happening simultaneously. Women themselves also are very concerned about uh, dignity in childbirth. 
And dignity is the word that comes up over and over again in the in the 40s and 50s and, and early 60s about what they seek in their own experience. And for some women, dignity is to be found in that docility. They want to be calm and passive and quiet. And they're very worried about being perceived as out of control. So, so they want to be civilized, if you will. And civilized women are calm and quiet and maybe even passive. So they are enthusiastic about taking drugs that will put them in that condition. But, but then they, they also have these hazy memories of thrashing around. They might have marks on their wrists from where they had to be restrained on the birthing bed because the particular combination of drugs and uh, in the 50s, they were experimenting with a lot of different combinations of, you know, cocktails of drugs in various mixes. They were giving women a lot of Demerol to make the, to sedate them in childbirth. Um, and so all of this, some of these women would have these hazy memories of, of thrashing about, or they would be informed that they had like struck a nurse or something like that. And, and that goes against that aspiration for um, a calm, cool, collected birth. And those women wanted to be awake and aware so that they could manage their own behavior rather than have it managed for them pharmacologically. Now, what about the psychological notion of labor pain? Right. So that has, um, so in the camp of, of people who want to control birth pain pharmacologically, mostly the idea is accepted that there is a physiological reality to the pain of childbirth that, that warrants management. In the psychological camp, there is widespread belief uh, that pain is generated in women's minds. And here there are two, two different explanations. In Great Britain, around the physician Grantly Dick Reed, you have one group that envisions women having been essentially culturally conditioned over generations to anticipate that childbirth will be painful and the and therefore they tense up and uh, and that tension generates the physical pain that was Dick Reed's theory very somewhat similarly but not derived from Dick Reed Lama uh, uh, Velvovsky and his team came up with a different explanation and their explanation relied on Pavlovian ideas about neuropsychology and um, pain signals being uh, transmitted, but be but the the reaction to those pain signals being uh, exacerbated by cultural expectations. So they talk about you know, various works of Russian literature that have harrowing childbirth scenes and the way in which this and stories from mothers and aunts and grandmothers and older sisters um, builds a certain expectation, not just of pain, but of like behavior in the face of pain. 
And so however it is they explained it, both of those uh, ideas are grounded in an understanding that the pain is generated in women's minds and not their bodies. And so therefore the field of combat against that pain should be psychological rather than pharmacological. No, I was going to note that at the same time, like there, I can see a, an interesting connection between both the pharmacological and also the psychological in that both of them required, or at least were about women controlling themselves during childbirth, right? In terms of like you spoke about a few minutes ago, in terms of the drugs being able for women to maintain a certain calmness. And then also in Vivovsky's method, the breathing and the group sessions, and it was about, you know, calming or, or controlling the mind. So you both, in both of these, you have this, this need to control, right? That's right. A need to um, either have women self-manage or have women be managed in their um, comportment. And in both cases, it's about creating a, an atmosphere that is serene for the carers. So how did how did Vilvovsky's method uh, fit within the practice of childbirth in Russia and the Soviet Union? Not well. <laughs> um, in in the in in a in a couple of different ways. So one way is that there was generally a cultural, a widespread cultural belief that pain in childbirth was normal, expected, natural and something women had to endure in a very kind of Russian way of this, like, well, just like suck it up, princess. We've all been through it. Um, move on. And so there is a kind of indifference, a callousness to women's pain that's really quite striking in the Russian context compared to every other context I looked at. And... It is interesting, and what you find in some of the, uh, in, in more in France, but especially in the United States and Great Britain, a common belief, baseless, but common belief among middle and upper class people that somehow poor and working class women are better equipped to endure the pain of labor. And maybe it's the class issues happening in the Soviet Union. Um, that might be a factor um, that you don't really you don't really have a robust uh, middle class in the Soviet Union to govern norms. But um, there is practitioners in. Russian birth facilities and maternity wards across the Soviet Union, um, they don't really care a whole lot about mitigating women's pain. And they don't care a whole lot about treating women with care and dignity. Um, and I think another factor here is, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of uh, capitalism, but you, you don't in the Soviet Union have any kind of consumer-driven reform or demand. It's just you take what you get, uh, what the state gives you. And the state chose not to put a lot of resources into women's pain management. 
Um, so when Delvovsky tries to introduce this idea, this, the central authorities are actually pretty quick to pick it up and to say this is now the official Soviet method of giving birth nationally. And they try to roll it out uh, across the entire country. But what they find is that, A, to, to do it effectively does actually require a fair amount of training of personnel. And many of those people that they're trying to train in this are deeply skeptical, both of the method itself of, and of whether there's any real reason to even bother trying to alleviate women's pain and labor. Um, moreover, the women they're trying to teach this method aren't necessarily, they're not choosing this. And which makes it very different than what happens in the consumer-driven movement that, that occurs in the West. So it sort of, um, it, it goes over like a lead balloon. Right. There's not a lot of buy-in from all sides, it seems. That's exactly it. That's right. So, uh, so most physicians are very skeptical and reluctant. And it all really comes to a head between the psychologists and the physicians at a conference in 1956 on the fifth anniversary of the um, nationwide rollout of psychoprophylaxis. And, um, and, you know, 1956 was a big year in the Soviet Union. Lots of change in the Soviet Union in 1956. And so what happens is the psychologists come out on the losing side of that argument, and it really just dies a pretty precipitous death in the Soviet Union after that. Yet it, it has a life outside of the Soviet Union, so it, it is adopted in certain respects by um, Ferdinand Lamaze in France, and then it finds Lamaze method finds its way to the United States. So how does this cultural transfer occur? Um, so actually, you know, that's the thing that got me so interested in this topic because um, I just thought, wait, what? How did that happen? Like, I, you know, that's just this crazy little factoid that this thing came from the Soviet Union. And I just thought, that's, that's nuts. Um, and in fact, it's much more well known in the United States than it ever was in the Soviet Union. So Fernand Lamaze worked at a hospital in Paris that was funded by the Metallurgical Workers Union, which had deep ties to the Communist Party. The whole leadership of the Metallurgist Workers Union were members of the French Communist Party, which was quite influential in the late 40s, early 50s. And he went on a junket to the Soviet Union. And the, the previous year before he did that, um, this Leningrad obstetrician named Nikolaev had given a paper on psychoprophylaxis in Paris. And Ferdinand Lamaze was curious about this. And so when he went to the Soviet Union, he insisted, uh, and he had to really press to be able to do it, or at least that's the story, uh, on witnessing a birth using psychoprophylaxis. Um, so one wonders about the experience of the woman who was giving birth, <laughs> that this French obstetrician is just like hanging out, and one wonders what she was told in 1951 uh, about how she'd better behave 
while giving birth to her child. But we don't know anything about her side of the story. What we do know is that he thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he went back to Paris and with a convert's zeal uh, sought to spread news of this miraculous psychological approach to pain management. And part of why it got so much uptake in the West was because in the 1950s, the kinds of drugs that were available were a really heavy-handed approach to women's pain management. So there was no, there, so epidurals had been invented, but they were not in widespread use. And that doesn't come in until decades later. And so women, there, women did not yet have an option for being like fully awake and conscious and able to actively participate and at the same time not experiencing pain. And so this was a way to give them that experience of being awake and aware um, while also um, not uh, overwhelmed by pain. So it, it Lamaze comes in, it seems, at the beginnings of, uh, you know, second wave feminism of the 50s and into the 60s. Yes. Well, that's actually a little bit later. So he he I would I would associate him more tightly with the post-war baby boom moment and that that's that um, idea of the kind of reinforcement of the nuclear family as the building block of society and amid the post-war baby boom he his vision of women being awake and aware and childbirth fit in very neatly with that. Uh, because the other thing about w women not being unconscious during birth was that then husbands, uh, and it was always husbands uh, at that time, husbands were able to be by their wives' side, which of course made no sense if they were under twilight sleep. So the Lamaze method goes hand in hand withdrawing husbands into the birthing process and 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 kind of re reshaping ideas about fatherhood and about um uh companionate marriage in the 40s and 50s the the ways in which Lamaze then gets enmeshed with second wave feminism is actually more a late 60s early 70s thing and, and that is about women kind of taking back power um, in maternity care. So if women are going to go into hospitals and have drugs, then they have to put themselves in the care of male physicians. If women are to have control, if, if it's supposed to be a woman-centered experience where women are surrounded by other women, then they have to eschew pharmacological pain relief. And this gives them an alternative. So how is it accepted in the United States coming, having this, you know, communist lineage either, not necessarily, I don't know if they were aware it was from the Soviet Union, but certainly Lamaze's communist background was an issue, no? So, so just to be um, uh, clear, Lamaze was himself never 
a member of the Communist Party, but he worked at this hospital that had ties to the Communist Party. So at the same time, he also had a very lucrative private obstetric practice. And one of his patients there was a woman named Marjorie Carmel. And she was an American living in Paris. And then she went on, she went back to the United States and she wrote a book called Thank You, Dr. Lamaze, um, which is still in print today and is a classic of American childbirth. And that's what made Lamaze kind of brought him into the vocabulary of the United States. And because she encountered it not in the Soviet Union, but in France, and it became associated with the name Lamaze, that gave it what I like to call Euro cachet. Um, you know, it's like, ooh, fancy French thing, like Brie, you know? And so uh, she never denied and nor did Lamaze that it originated in the Soviet Union and Lamaze International's precursor organization, which was called the American Society for Psychoprophylaxis in Obstetrics. I think you can see why they changed their name. Um, so that organization also was always very clear that it originated in the Soviet Union, but they also were very quick to move on from that fact and to emphasize the ways in which Lamaze innovated on that method. The reality is he really didn't innovate so much, and they overemphasized it a little bit, I think, to try to distance it from its Soviet origins. I had hoped I would have found a lot more Red Scare, Ooh, we've got to whitewash this thing to like cleanse it of its communist origins. And it's the only sadness I have about this project is that I never found any like really good stuff on that. Just I remember there was a couple of uh, passages in the book where um, the guy who developed the natural childbirth method, um, uh, Dick Reed, uh, mentioned, tried to wave this kind of flag of, of anti-communism around it because he, he was clearly jealous because it was competition with his natural childbirth method. Yes, and he was quite convinced that they stole it from him. And there's no evidence that they were aware of his work. And even the Pope, so the Pope weighed in on this question. And in a, in a phrase that basically is saying, like, even a broken clock is right twice a day, the Pope says, you know, even a communist can have a good idea once in a while. So, so what was the fate now, you know, because a, a while ago you said early in our conversation, you spoke about how, you know, it, the breathing itself is, is pretty ubiquitous in terms of it's, it's, it's widely associated with giving birth, but the Lamaze method itself has kind of fallen out of, you know, it's European cachet has worn off over the years. So uh, what happens to it? What leads to this decline or, or maybe even transformation? So there's a couple of different things. One is that for many women, it's simply not effective. Um, and s for some women, it is. And something like 15% of women, uh, no matter, given nothing, no help for pain management whatsoever, will have an experience of childbirth in which they find the pain manageable. So that 15% of women think Lamaze is very effective, but they would have, it would have been just as effective for them to do nothing in particular, because they just were the lucky ones for whom it wouldn't have been that painful to give birth. But for the other 85%, you find by the early 1970s, 
and increasingly so as the 70s wear on, more and more stories of disillusionment in, in the UK, in the US, and in France. Um, in the Soviet Union by that time, nobody's even talking about it anymore. Um, but in the West where it was still being used, you find a lot more people expressing dissatisfaction with it, that they were promised something that did, didn't in fact um, alleviate their pain. And then they are left with that deeply distressing, we would call traumatic experience. Um, and so that's one factor. Another factor is the um, rise of, of access to epidural anesthesia. Now, a lot there are a lot of concerns about epidural anesthesia. I'm not promoting epidural anesthesia, but it does kind of undercut the main thing that the Lamaze method offered, which was being awake and aware and, and having your pain managed at the same time because you can have that with epidural anesthesia for all the, the unpleasant experiences that some women have with epidurals. It did offer that in a way that didn't involve extensive training and that for the most part wasn't a kind of a gamble, like whether this would work for you or not. You didn't have to spend months preparing and then hoping it would work out. You just knew it was going to work more or less. And of course that, that, um, promotion of it happens not by accident, right? Again, we get back to this issue of the role of material conditions. Um, a lot of hospitals wanted to make the anesthesiologists that they'd hired um, uh, earn their keep. It was very expensive to have an anesthesiologist hanging about waiting for surgery and and bringing anesthesiology into maternity care in a routine way um, helped pay for the access to the anesthesiologist in other contexts. Um, there was money to be made off of promoting epidural anesthesia. Um, and, and part of this story also is the ways in which access to nitrous oxide in the United States was um, curtailed. And that, that's actually a story that's, that we've not really gotten, that historians haven't gotten to the bottom of yet. Um, because uh, nitrous oxide remains readily available in Great Britain, in Canada, and for most women, it probably is enough. And it's much less heavy an, uh, an intervention than epidural anesthesia, and it's a lot cheaper. Um, but, but in the United States, uh, in the 1960s, um, it gets very difficult to access. And um, I, I myself have not, I've been like looking to get to the bottom of this and haven't yet found the smoking gun. Uh, but, but one wonders what role um, drug lobbyists have played in regulations about the transportation of nitrous oxide in the United States and the, the rules and regulations around that that have curtailed access to it in, um, the, in obstetric wards. And, and finally, um, since your history of, of Lamaze is an international history, I'm curious how you see it, and in, in, especially since, you know, it's Soviet Union, Europe and the United States, 
how does this history of Lamaze also speak to the history of women's experience in the 20th century? Well, I think that, um, as I said before, that the ways in which the material conditions of the Soviet Union really highlight how different that context is. I think similarly, we see um, the ways in which the trajectory of the women's movement and women's ability to exert agency over their own lives individually and collectively is very different. However flawed the democracies of Western Europe and North America are, there is a, a possibility for collective action there that did not coalesce in the Soviet Union for women. And some of this has to do with the ways in which feminism was discredited in the Soviet Union and the state sort of took over a, a kind of a monopolization of women's rights advocacy. Um, but you just don't have the same kind of collective action possible for women to set their own agenda in the Soviet Union, as you see in Western Europe and North America. Um, and the other way in which um, I think it's important to recognize is the distinction that this study brings up between the, um, the socialist system in the Soviet Union, state socialism there, um, but the universal health care systems in France and Great Britain versus the capitalist um, health care in the United States and how that interfaces with consumer advocacy uh, and the ways in which um, women are, uh, as consumers, irrespective of whether there's a national health care system or not, able to exert leverage um, to some extent on the kind of maternity care that they get um, in a way they can't in the Soviet Union. And the, the, the final thing I would say is that um, everywhere, it's, it's very challenging to be a new mother. And so change in maternity care, I think, is really difficult to achieve in part because the people who are most invested in it have the fewest personal resources to put into advocacy um, in the sense that... Um, you know, it's it's this kind of like forgotten, um, you know, child of the women's movement in a way, um, in part because mothers have plenty else to do, right? Um, so they don't have so much time necessarily. We see more adv advocacy going into breastfeeding maybe than we do into actually into birth care. Um, because maybe women stay at that stage of breastfeeding longer um, and through successive children, whereas the act of giving birth, it's, it, it happens and women have to have um, a certain kind of, I don't know, um, commitment to sticking with advocating for something that they themselves personally aren't necessarily going to go through again. Um, so there's... The ways in which mothers, new, the, the act of b 
becoming a mother kind of gets short shrift in the women's movement um, for that reason, those sort of pragmatic reasons, but also the way there's such an uncomfortable relationship between second wave feminist ideas and motherhood itself, full stop. That was Paula Michaels, an associate professor of history at Monash University in Australia. She's the author of Curative Powers, Medicine and Empire in Stalin's Soviet Central Asia, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and Lamaze in International History, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! to the white.